There is, throughout the Bible, certain people that stand out as generosity giants. Let me refer you to Mary, the one who came to Jesus as a disciple with something of a checkered past. Cleansed by the wonderful grace and mercy of God, touched by the love of Jesus Christ, she came one time and poured some anointment some uh, oil anointing the feet of Jesus Christ. The disciples were shocked. That's too extravagant for the oil. The pure white nard was probably worth a year's wages. <laughs> oh, but to Mary, nothing was too good for Jesus. She poured that on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and Jesus said what this lady has done is going to be told throughout generations as an act of genuine love and generosity. Uh, there's another generosity giant in the scriptures, the widow who gave a mite. What is a mite? Well, something smaller than a penny, and our pennies are totally useless. If I were to go on some campaign, one of them would be, let's get rid of pennies. This woman gave a mite. Well, then why do you call her a generosity giant? It's all she had. Volume-wise, if you simply are counting dollars, it was an insignificant gift. Proportional, it was a huge gift. She gave everything she had. And there are some people today who have a lot of money who want to give the widow's might. <laughs> they totally misunderstand. It's not the gift, it's the heart. That's what counts. By the way, small gifts are not insignificant. Maybe you've been intimidated by some of the generosity giants and you say, I could never give that amount. God is not concerned about the amount. He's concerned about your heart. Let me make it clear. God doesn't need your money. You need to give your money to show your total dependence on Him, to show that everything comes from Him. When you give, you're a less selfish person, which means you're a better person. Generosity helps in all kinds of aspects. But these are some of the generosity giants. There was a group of churches that I would put into that category of generosity giants, the churches of Macedonia. But before we go to the Scripture, you've got to understand the backstory, or the Scripture doesn't seem to have the same impact. Let me tell you the story. It's 55 A.D., and the Apostle Paul is ministering in the southern region of Greece called Achaia, chief city, Corinth. He gets word that back in the land of Judea, the southern part of Palestine, where Jerusalem is, that the Jews are being hit hard with a famine. They're in dire need, tough economic straits. They need food, they need clothing, they need the basics of shelter, and Paul says, we need to do something, Corinthians. We need to do something to give to these people. Now, that was always on Paul's heart, to give to people in need. Long before it became cool to give to social needs, the Apostle Paul was right there. In fact, in 43 A.D., we read these words from Acts chapter 11. You can see them on the screen, where the Apostle Paul says the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. 
And they also did this, sending their gift to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Saul is the Hebrew name for the mighty apostle Paul. So in 43 AD, the churches got together and they gave their money. Brought the, it was brought to the elders by Paul and by Barnabas. When you come to Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, this is an earmark of my ministry. When the uh, leaders of the church in Jerusalem were giving Paul's instruction about his mission to the Gentiles, they simply told Paul, we want to make sure that you remember the poor. And Paul said, that's the very thing I want to do. Which means today, if we're going to have a wholesome, holistic ministry, we've got to be concerned for the poor. It's in Romans chapter 15 that Paul talks about some of the reasons for this type of generosity. And notice he mentions two regions, Macedonia and Achaia. He said for Macedonia and Achaia, we're pleased to make a contribution to this need among the poor, the saints in Jerusalem. And they were pleased to do it because they realized they owed these Jewish people something. For if the Gentiles have shared from the Jews in spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to give back in material blessings. So Paul says, here are some reasons why we need to collect this gift and take it to the poor. Number one, they have needs, just their basic physical needs. Number two, there's a spiritual reason. They blessed us with the gospel. It's just appropriate for us to help them when physically they have some needs. Thirdly, a very practical reason is Paul wanted to bridge the gap between the Jew and the Gentile. And he says one of the ways to do that is to give. There were critics in the Jerusalem church, Jewish critics, saying the Gentiles can't be part of the church. Paul says if you guys show your generosity when they're in need, that's going to do a lot to help bridge the gap. So Paul says, let's give. And the churches in Macedonia and Achaia did that. So now we're in 55 AD, another famine. Paul's in Corinth, and he's talking to the people in Achaia. This map helps us get a little better understanding of the regions. Now, the numbers uh, don't help us a lot, except simply to tell you that numbers 7 and 8 tell us where southern Greece is. Achaia is that uh, peninsula, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, southern end of Greece, chief city is Corinth. Just to the east of that is Athens. By the way, we, the trip we took just about a month ago touched all of these cities. We were in southern Greece, and then we went to northern Greece. So Paul's in the south, and he said to the people in Corinth, you need to give, and they said, Paul, we need to give. We see the need. Mark us down. I don't think they filled out a card, but they told Paul, we promise we want to give. We're excited to give. So Paul is pumped, and he travels 200 miles north to Macedonia. See where Macedonia is? Number six, five, four. And the chief churches there are Berea, Thessaloniki, Philippi, Neapolis, all cities we visited just last month. 
And Paul goes up to Macedonia and says, hey, there's a need back in Jerusalem. And I was just down in Corinth, and they were excited to give. How about you guys? And the Macedonians say, man, can we please be involved in the offering? We don't want to miss the blessing. In fact, they were so excited, the Macedonians said, we're not just going to promise, we'll give right now. And they gave their money. And Paul was thrilled. Fast forward a year, and the promise that the Corinthians made never materialized. They never gave. They promised. They had good intentions. Nothing came. And so Paul sits down to write his letter to the Corinthians, and he's dealing with spiritual problems. And he says to himself, oh, there's one problem I probably need to deal with before I get there. And that's what we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is going to describe the Macedonian givers. He's going to describe what they did. And he's telling the Corinthians about the people in the north. And he's actually going to compare the two. So we read in verse 1, And now, brothers, in the south, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the churches in the north, the Macedonians. And he begins to describe what Christian giving is all about. He says in verse 2, Out of the most severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. So notice, severe trial, things weren't going well for them. It might have been the persecution that they were receiving from the Jews. Later on, the persecution would primarily come from the Romans. But it was a severe time, and they didn't have a lot. But yet they were still overflowing with joy. Please understand this, my friend. Your joy should not be dependent upon your circumstances or you are going to be a miserable person. Your enthusiasm, your optimism should not be based merely on your circumstances. It needs to transcend that. In the midst of severe trial, they were filled with overflowing joy. Why? Their joy came from Jesus, from being in Christ, forgiven by the work of Christ, filled with the Spirit of Christ. That's why they had joy. And they were all committed to Christ. So because of that, they are rich in their giving. They are generous in their giving. Their gifts may not have been as much as the Corinth uh, Christians could give. Corinth was a far more wealthy area. But they gave richly and generously. Notice verse 3. Paul says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Sacrificial giving. They might have said, you know, we're, we're even going to give more than what we think we can. And we're going to trust God to meet our needs so that we can meet the needs of those presently who are in dire straits. They gave voluntarily. That's the end of verse 3. There was no order here. There was no demand. Verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Here's this eagerness. 
Don't miss me. How many times have we taken an offering and people stood up? Hey, don't miss me. Hey, the plate didn't come by here. We're eager for a lot of things. We don't want to be overlooked or missed, but sometimes the offering is not the thing that we're most concerned about. They said, don't miss us. And they pleaded for the opportunity to give. Notice verse 5. They didn't give as we expected, Paul said. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. There was this submission to the Lord and his purposes. God is our creator and all we have belongs to him. Jesus is our savior and all we have belongs to him. We give ourselves first to God. And if you've done that, then the giving is evident in the lives of others. Grace has to touch your heart first before you can touch the hearts of others with grace. So now Paul says in verse 6, talking about the Corinthians, we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, knowledge, complete earnestness, in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And then Paul says one other thing. I, I want to jump down to verse 9 and notice this. Paul says, For you know, you Corinthians know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be rich. The giving of the Macedonians, according to verse 9, is very Christ-like. Notice the word grace. Did you notice that? Grace, the Greek word is charis, and it's seen throughout this passage. Just reviewing quickly in verse 1, know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonians. It's the grace of God that touches our heart so that we want to touch the hearts of others. You know, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without grace in your soul, but if you have grace in your soul, you have to give. It touches you, it changes you, it transforms you. They were touched by God's grace. Look at verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this ministry. Now, unfortunately, the NIV is translated the Greek word charis, which is used again, by the English word privilege. Not a bad translation, but what you miss is the repetition of the word. This is grace giving. They said, we want to be involved in this grace. Grace has touched our heart. We want grace to go out from us. Please let us give in the offering. Notice verse 6. Grace is an act. You people in Corinth, complete the act of grace by giving. Whenever you give, it should be motivated by grace, and people who are generous are simply demonstrating the grace that has touched their heart. Grace can't be contained. It must be shared. And then notice the last part of verse 7. This grace is the grace of giving. In the Old Testament, you might talk about the law of giving. In the New Testament, we emphasize the grace of giving. If the Old Testament law is 10%, that's a good place to start. Grace giving should supersede that. 
Now, Paul says to these guys also in verse 9, this is exactly how Jesus gives. So Paul's arguing by two examples to encourage the Corinthians to fulfill their promise. Number one, look at the people in the north, the Macedonians. Number two, look at Jesus. And if you're a Christian, don't you want to be like Christ? We're to be little Christ's. Romans tells us we have been ordained to be like Christ. And God has purposed to do everything he can to make us like Jesus. Jesus was generous. And that's what he's working in your life and mine. God is generous. For God so loved the world that he gave, God wants us to be like him. Godliness means sharing his characteristics. So what can we say about people like this? the people in Macedonia. Well, we can say this. They give just like Jesus. This is just like Jesus, this generous, giving, loving heart. And we should have the same heart as well. Now, the Apostle Paul spends some time talking about the people in Achaia, the Corinthians. Look at verse 10. No, verse 8. Start at verse 8. I'm not commanding you people in Corinth, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And then, of course, he uses the illustration of Christ. Verse 10, here's my advice about what is best for you Corinthians in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do might be matched by the completion of the doing of it according to your means. So if these people were tentative and hesitant, they'd made a promise and didn't fulfill it. And Paul says, I'm not giving you a command, verse 8. Verse 10, here's my advice to you. Finish the work you promised to do. Fulfill your promise. It's to your advantage to do it. You will the one, you'll be the ones who will receive the rich blessing from the doing of it. He says in verse 8, this is a test. Test the sincerity of your love. And I'm doing it by comparing it to the giving of others. Generally, it's not a good idea to compare yourself with other people. But here Paul does it with churches. And the greatest church is not the the church that has the most people or takes in the most money. The greatest church is the church that gives the most. Gives out in ministry and gives out in meeting needs and sending the gospel around the world through missionaries. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, how do you guys compare? You don't compare too well with Jesus, I know that. You don't compare too well with the Macedonian churches either. And the Lord would be saying the same thing to us today. How does the church in Lansing compare? In particular, South Church. How do you compare with Jesus? Are you generous? Well, it's tough to compare ourselves with Christ because we always fall short, but he's our goal. He's the one we aim at. But let's compare ourselves with the Macedonians. How are we doing? And we find that maybe we're not doing so well. That's why it's helpful for a survey like George Barna to come across our desk and realize that most 
churches are giving on an average of 2% of the people's income. 2%? That doesn't even come close to the law. And it seems to be devoid of grace. Now, I'm not going to give you a command, but here's my advice. Let's be faithful and generous like the Macedonians. Because that's where the rich blessing is going to come from. Let's jump down to chapter 9 and see Paul's reasoning as he continues to talk to these people in Achaia. This is, this is great logic, by the way. This is Paul the lawyer. And man, is he making a good case. He's so persuasive. He says to them, uh, There is no need for me to write to you about this service, this service to the saints, that is, giving to the needs of the people in Jerusalem. For I know your eagerness to help. In fact, I've been boasting about your eagerness to the people in the north, the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm motivated the people in the north to give. But (laughs) I'm sending brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove to be hollow, but that you would be ready as I said you would be. In fact, the last part of chapter 8, here's the team, the advance team that Paul sent. It was Titus and some other guys to collect the offering and to prepare it among the Corinthians. Paul says, here's my reason for it. Chapter 9, verse 4. If the Macedonians come with me down to Achaia and they find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed having been so confident and yet not coming through. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you promised. Then it will be ready as truly a generous gift and not one that you have to give because you're put on the spot, grudgingly. And then Paul gives them some great motivation. He says, remember this, verse 6, Whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously, will reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, You will abound in every good work. Because it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor, and that is why His righteousness will endure forever. The way we invest in eternity is to give our possessions now for the work of God, to give it eagerly, enthusiastically, sacrificially, generously, giving ourselves first to God and then giving to those around us. And as we give generously, God blesses generously. Notice verse 10. The one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store in seed and enlarge your harvest of righteousness. There's a material and Uh, spiritual blessings combined. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. So as you give generously, God says, I'll entrust you with more 
to do the work of God. This is how he generally works. And as you generously give, that will result in thanksgiving to God. Why? Verse 12, as you meet the needs of people, they will be blessed and praise God. Every time you give, you're adding another choir member to the great chorus that sings praise and gratitude to Jehovah. And that's why giving is so important. Now, I know some of you are thinking, boy, talk about manipulation, you know. Here it is, Commitment Sunday, and you're going through all these things and, you know, comparing us to the Macedonians, comparing us to Jesus, and, and all of this. Yeah, I am. This is the best way I can exegete this passage. But let me honestly tell you this. I'm not commanding you. This is my advice to you. God's word is true. And you cannot outgive God. One great philanthropist was asked how come he keeps giving money and more and more of his money to the cause of Christ. And he says, Well, as God shovels it in, I shovel it out, but he has a bigger shovel than me. He just keeps blessing, and I keep giving. I know you might be a little. Skeptical of motives. But let me sim simply tell you this. I believe with all of my heart it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. I believe God holds blessings for those who give generously. I believe the word repeatedly says that time and time again. It's not the amount, it's the attitude of your heart. What do you say to givers like those in Achaia? What do you say to people like that who are hesitant and holding back? This is what you say to them. Don't miss the blessing. Don't miss being involved in the work of God. Don't be on the outside looking in. If grace has touched your heart, then let grace flow through you to touch the lives of others. I think Thornton Wilder had it right when he compared money to manure. <laughs> he said they're both pretty useless until they are spread out. And the more we share, that's when the blessings began to accrue in rich ways. The generous people in our church, every one of them would have a story, I'm sure, of God's rich blessing and would say a hearty amen to what God says. They walk by faith, not by sight. There's a young man in our church, I won't mention his name so as not to embarrass him, but he was in college in the year 2000 when we moved here. And he said, you know, back in 2000, I was a college student and I didn't have much and couldn't give much. In fact, I couldn't give anything. But there were other people at South who gave for me. I don't know if this young man came to Christ under Neil's ministry or was discipled in Christ under the ministry, but other people at South gave to the college ministry because college students don't give a whole lot. And they gave faithfully so that South could have a college ministry. And this young man said the people gave so the ministry could flourish, and I benefited from their faithfulness and generosity. That guy left South, got more education and experience, married, starts a family, comes back to South. He's now in our church, and this is what he says. Years have passed, and I'm now in a different position. 
Now it's time for me to step up. People blessed me in the past. Now I want to bless people. People stood there for me. Now I want to stand there for others and for the next generation. You say, I may not be around long enough to enjoy this building. No, but maybe others will. None of us have a guarantee of tomorrow. We're not giving for ourselves. We're giving for the cause of Jesus Christ. And it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. If you think this is just a way for me to somehow force you into giving more, I feel sorry for you. That is not my motive at all. But I unashamedly say to you, this is the teaching of Scripture, and we are blessed by doing, not by hearing. A great church is not a great church because of what it takes in. A great church is a great church because of what it gives out. Is South a great church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will speak to our hearts and that you will do a work as we now prepare for this special offering. We've been talking about forward in faith for a long time. And Lord, now is the day, Commitment Sunday. Lord, now is the time when we put our cards in the offering plate. We've prayed, we've made decisions. We want to give eagerly, sacrificially, generously to your work in this place. I thank you, Lord, for the hearts of everyone who is so desirous of giving, whether they can give a small amount or a large amount. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless the increase and you will bring in what we need. We pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. Just before we have the actual offering, let me encourage you to take the Faith Promise card. Um, If you didn't get one today, you can uh, pick one up later. The ushers uh, might have some of those cards with them. They do. If you need a Faith Promise card, raise your hand, and they'll be sure to give you one. So ushers, you'll have to turn around. There's a hand over here. Ushers, you'll have to turn around and kind of walk your way back up to hand out those Faith uh, Promise cards. If you want to bring yours back tonight, that's fine. If you want to give it this week, we will take them. And we are going to announce the amount next week on Celebration Sunday. So if you need a card, keep your hand up. The ushers will get that card to you. If you'd like two cards, you can have them. That was a joke. It was a bad one, wasn't it? Okay. And I pray that you will give as God has encouraged you to give generously from your heart. Put down that amount. And if you need to put your check with a card in an envelope, that would be helpful for the counters. And then just pass, uh, put your offering in the plates as they pass.